Good morning. Real privilege to be with you on this final week in this uh, sermon series we're calling Cultivate. We're basing it on Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. And we understand about fruits that they need to be cultivated. They need to be grown and nurtured, paid attention to. Some effort needs to go into it. Sometimes they need to be pruned. They need to be fertilized. They need to be watered. And this Galatians 5 passage reminds us what those fruits of the Spirit are. Remember, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And today we're talking about that last one, that idea of self-control. The original Greek in Galatians 5 for self-control is a word, I think it's pronounced enkrataia, enkrataia, and it really means to be self-controlled or to have self-mastery or self-governance. And this is helpful for me because these first two, especially self-control and self-mastery, to me, conjures thoughts of kind of a choking or a shackling or a grasping or a binding. And I suppose some levels of self-control can speak to that, but I like the idea of self-governance. It's a little bit more elegant to me. It's a little bit more nuanced. To me, that means kind of setting up um, the priorities in my life, the man that I want to be, the things I do want to do, the things that I don't want to do. And I'm going to build my life on that and live a self-controlled life. Self-control is important. The Bible talks about it a lot in the Old Testament, Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. What this means basically is if you don't have self-control, the bad stuff gets in, right? A city whose walls are broken through, the bad stuff gets in when the walls are broken through. If you've wrestled with self-control over the years, over the decades, like me, be encouraged. God knows all about it. And he's a helper. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure. So our God is with us. He doesn't want us to suffer through this. He helps us. The text that we'll actually be using to pull apart and preach from this morning is from Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. My brothers and sisters, this is God's word for us this morning. I would invite you to join me in prayer. Father in heaven, this morning I'm asking for clarity of speech as we learn about cultivating this fruit of self-control. Help us to learn from your word that we might be gracious and kind, loving and self-controlled followers of Jesus. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray it for Christ's glory and in his name and together we all say, Amen. So I want to work through this Titus 2 passage that we just read about, word by word, truth by truth, precept upon precept, and see how it is we can learn how to cultivate this idea of self-control. And first of all, I think it's really interesting that God's grace teaches or instructs us. God's grace teaches or instructs us. It says it right there at the beginning, Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us. So this word grace that we use to talk about God's position toward us, this unmerited favor that we have, this um, blessing that we get even because we don't deserve it, how does that teach us anything? What can we learn from it? Well, I think we can learn five things and we'll move really quickly through these. These are at the top of your outline. And I believe the first thing we can learn or that God's grace teaches us is that God's grace is continuous. So we learn that our struggle with self-control is continuous. 
I think this is a battle that'll go on tomorrow and next week and next year and in the decades to come. We, we know God's grace is um, continuous. First Timothy 1.14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, a whole bunch of it. I got it yesterday. I got it today. I'll get it tomorrow, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This could be a struggle that goes on. So be aware that God's grace is continuous, and we learn from that that God's um, that, our, that our struggle with self-control will be something that is continuous. The second thing I believe we can learn from grace is that God's grace has not only saved us, but it's made us completely new. God's grace has made us completely new. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. What that teaches me in the area of self-control is that you don't have to give in to the same old temptations. You're not that same person. I know it's a struggle. I know it's hard, but you don't have to. You've been made completely new, not partially new, but completely new. Third thing I believe we can learn from grace is that we rely completely on God's grace for forgiveness and for righteous living. Completely. There's nothing we can do for forgiveness. It's unmerited, undeserving. God gives it to us. And there's not much we can do in the area of righteous living except by God's grace. So rely completely on God. Be empowered completely by the Holy Spirit. Spirit in this wrestling match with self-control. Number four, God's grace is so overwhelming that we have replaced our former affections. And we'll talk more about this later. But when you've encountered God's grace, it's so knee-buckling. It's so enormous when it presses down on you. You want to have nothing to do with the old self. You replace old affections. Author Stephen J. Cole writes, when you experience God's unmerited favor, that's God's grace, It motivates you to want to please him in everything that you do. As you read God's word, you begin to realize that there is much in your life that displeases the Lord, who gave himself on the cross to save you from God's judgment. So you begin walking on your path with Jesus, described as denying yourself daily, taking up your cross and following him. A preacher named Charles Spurgeon from decades ago, not, not a Lutheran guy, so we would disagree on a couple things. But I think Charles Spurgeon gets it solid here when he says this, a person who is really saved by grace does not need to be told that he is under solemn obligations to serve Christ, to live a self-controlled life. The new life within him tells him that. Instead of regarding it as a burden, he gladly surrenders himself, body, soul, and spirit to the Lord. And quickly, number five in the area of learning from grace, God's grace is, is active. So be proactive in a self-control program. Maybe I shouldn't have used the word self-control program. That sounds so rigid and so official. But what I'm trying to say here is be proactive. God's grace is active. <clears throat> it does something. So don't just wake up tomorrow thinking that you're going to live self-controlled without the idea that you need to, that you need to go get it, that it's something you need to be proactive about. So as we're continuing through this Titus 2 passage, we learn that grace teaches us. Now we want to understand what it is that God, God's grace teaches us. And we can read it right there, that God's grace teaches or instructs us to say no to ungodliness. God's grace teaches or instructs us to say no to ungodliness. We read it in the text. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So ungodliness can be defined as anything contrary to the will or nature of God as revealed in his word ungodliness, and it kind of makes sense by looking at the word, defined as anything contrary to God's will or nature 
as revealed in his word. So maybe you're thinking of the commandments, and that's good. The commandments instruct us. If you're living outside of the commandments, you're living in ungodliness. But ungodliness can also mean not the overt sins that maybe you're thinking of right now, but it can mean anyone who is living without God or is estranged from God is, and neither fears God or, or doesn't serve God. So you know people like that. They're not overt sinners. They don't seem to be doing anything scandalous but they're living a life of ungodliness because they think he doesn't exist. They don't fear him. They don't serve him. They don't honor him. So God's grace teaches us to say no to that kind of stuff. I believe the enemy is very clever. He's very good at slowly moving us toward ungodliness by hanging temptations from the world, not necessarily the overt shameful acts that we could think of, but the subtle slide away from the complete trust and reliance on God. It says so in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Well, we learn that God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Number three, it also teaches us to say no to the worldly passions. Now, these are different from ungodliness. I think they fall under the category of ungodliness, but these are more specific. These are the things that the world hangs before us and says, hey, you want this instead of God. This will fulfill you more. This will make you happier longer than that God you purport to serve. But God's word is clear, especially in 1 John 2 from the message translation. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. The world and all it's wanting, 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 it's on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. The, the enemy is distracting us with temporary pleasures that will ultimately lead to nothing. And many of us have been walking the faith long enough to know that we're not called to invest in this world we're called to invest in the things of heaven because these things are perishing anyway. So live a life of self-control that honors God and invests in eternity. Matthew 6, Jesus talking at the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. You might know the name Jim Elliott, pretty famous um, martyred uh, missionary to South America about 70 years ago. Pretty famous quote of his. Maybe you've seen it. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, Jim Elliott says, you're a wise person to give up what you can't keep, this life. You can't keep it. It'll be taken from you eventually. Be wise and give that away so you can gain what you can never lose, a relationship with God, fullness of life, and an eternity with him that the Bible talks about as being perfect. So let that daily flow of grace that we talked about earlier empower you to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. The next thing we learn from this Titus 2 passage in the area of self-control as we're trying to cultivate it is God's grace teaches or instructs us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And those three um, put together, I think, are important. So what could that mean? I didn't have space on your outline, so if you love taking notes, maybe turn your outline to the side and write these next five in the margins. Here are five really practical ways, disciplines really, 
to help you in living a self-controlled life, and I bet you you know what the first one is already, to be in God's Word daily. I'm so privileged to be part of a church that treasures God's Word and holds it high and reads it and shares from it and teaches it. And we say it around here a lot, maybe almost to the point of being annoying, but we'll say it every week. Read God's Word. It'll change your life. Read it every day. Read a big chunk of it. Ask questions. Read it out loud. Read it as you're walking. Read it as you're sitting. Think about it. Take it into your life. This will help you in the area of self-control and living a life that is self-controlled, upright, and godly. Number two, pray for strength. God is with us in this battle. We sang that second song, right? The battle is really yours, God. I can't live a self-controlled life without you. Would you help me? Lord, you know the areas of temptation. You know how easily I'm drawn in. Would you help me avoid those things? Would you give me strength today and in this moment to live a life that is self-controlled? Number three, come to corporate worship. Thank you for coming to church today. It's important. Thanks to, uh, for, to those of you uh, worshiping online. We, we show, sure wish you would come and join us in the room. If you can, we, we, we think you should. Let's be together in this place on the weekends, shoulder to shoulder. Let's pack the place. Let's have to put in extra services because so many people are coming to encourage each other, to love each other, to confess together, to, to hear the pronouncement of the forgiveness of our sins together, as the Bible says we should. And that takes me to number four, serve do something. Change a life. Bless somebody. How about that workshop on how p- poverty happens? I'm so intrigued by that. I got to check my schedule. Not sure I can make it, but ways to serve. And that's not the only way. You're serving by being here. You're an encouragement to others. People see you and they go, okay, people are coming to church. This is a place where the spirit is moving. Serve. Give of yourself. Live a selfless life. This will help you in the area of self-control. And number five, confess your failures and receive God's forgiveness when you fail, and we'll talk about this in depth in just a moment, come to him. He's a forgiver of sins. Our brother Martin Luther says, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given me what is yours. You have become what you were not so that I might become what I was not. I think the next thing we can learn from this Titus 2 passage in the area of self-control is that, oh, thank God that Jesus is coming to relieve us in this battle. This gives me so much hope. This will last, yeah, till I'm 70 or 80 or 90, till whatever God takes me home, but it won't last forever. And maybe it'll stop because Jesus will come again. Look at this Titus 2 passage. We're talking about the area of being self-controlled. And he writes, we're being self-controlled in this present age. But then he goes on to say, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is such a relief for me because if you wrestle with self-control like I do, one day we won't have to. It's great news. Jesus is coming again to bring the new heaven and the new earth. And the Bible says there will be no temptation there. We won't wrestle in the area of self-control. The Bible talks about being ready. Don't fall asleep as the second coming is coming. Uh, Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus teaches, be aware, be awake, Jesus is coming. Get ready to celebrate the coming of our King. And that is when all things will be made right. But for our purposes this morning, just know that the troubles of the world are ending, including our struggle with self-control. You remember the close scenes of Saving Private Ryan? Captain Miller is already wounded, and he's kind of sitting on the bridge, propped up against that thing, that bridge they've been fighting 
to maintain until relief comes. And he's laying up against it, and he's got the pistol and taking shots, just using a little pistol against an enemy tank. And he's shooting at the tank. And I think the film, filmmakers want us to believe that I think on his fourth shot, he shoots and the tank blows up as if to believe it somehow was the shot from the pistol. But then we find out it was actually the, the P-51 Mustangs, the tank busters that came to relieve them. See, they were fighting to save that bridge and we're fighting for self-control. And we'll make it to the end, but thank God the relief is coming. And Captain Miller eventually dies, sorry. So maybe, maybe that's where the wheels from my illustration fall off here. But that's us, right? Pop, pop, I'm, I'm fighting for self-control, God. Uh, maintain me, give me the ammo to do it until you come again. And relief will come from the sky, but not fighters this time. It will be Jesus coming in victory to save us. Number six, let's talk about this idea about a superior satisfaction. Um, a superior satisfaction. There's a state of deep faith where you're so satisfied with God that you'd rather have him than sin. There, there's a state of deep faith where you're so satisfied with God, where he fills you so much that you'd rather have him than sin. Uh, the psalm writer in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? fullness of joy. He could have just said, in your presence, there's joy. That would have been a powerful statement. But he goes out of his way to let us know that there's a fullness of joy. It fills us. There's no room for anything else. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To have such a fulfillment, a superior satisfaction from God that we are now moved away from our desire to sin. We talked about it two weeks ago, to be so satisfied with Christ that he is all that I treasure. The key here for us to understand is to, uh, that we treasure God's redemption more than any other thing so that sin is undesirable. And I think maybe what we don't hear enough is the recollection of who we were before Christ saved us. Sinners, to be sure, you would admit that. But headed to an eternity that the Bible is clear is horrible. A forever and ever and ever, and the Bible uses words like torment, and gnashing of teeth, and wailing, and moaning. That was us. That's where we were going. We're comfortable North Americans in 2023, so we don't think about that. But that truly is who we were and where we were going. But through God's love, he sent Jesus, our Redeemer, to pull us up out of that. And Jesus takes our sin off of us, the reason that we were to be punished, and puts him on himself, and he pays the price on the cross. So not only are we saved from the, the most horrible circumstances really imaginable, we are made kings and queens. And the Father gives us shoes and a robe and a ring and throws us a party. Treasure him that deeply. Deeply realize who we were before Christ saved us and who you are now. And let it drive out any desire for anything other than Christ. I was talking to a mature Christian brother of mine, a guy that I love a lot. He's along in years. And he was just being honest. We were just talking kind of um, randomly. And he said, you know, he's at the point of his life where his faith walk is so deep that he really just desires to be obedient to God. That's his life. And, and I, on some levels, I can appreciate that. Like, yeah, I kind of sense that in my life too. In some days, some moments, some circumstances, Lord, I just want to be obedient. And some days and some circumstances and some moments, I'm just pulled into temptation. And then the battle for self-control begins. But I believe as we mature, as fruit is cultivated in our lives, we'll reach the state of deep faithfulness, not where we're perfectly sinless, that won't happen until Jesus comes again, but where we're so filled with the goodness of God that he's all that we desire, that we really have no taste for things that are 
in rebellion against him. What an interesting passage. I think we could preach a whole sermon on it. 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ controls us. Golly, we could unpack that. What could that mean? When God's enormous love presses in and drives out all sin, it controls us. And that's really the aim for us today and in the days to come. Last week, pastors already said it this way, pray for God's kingdom to replace yours. Pray for God's kingdom to replace yours. In other words, living the life that God has for you instead of your own priorities. This will definitely help in the area of self-control. In this beautiful passage from Luke 12, do not be afraid, little flock, Jesus says, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The kingdom of ours is God. Uh, The kingdom of God is ours. Jesus promises it. Well, finally, thank God that Jesus forgives all failures in this area, including the areas of blowing the idea of self-control. When you fight for self-control and you blow it, God forgives you. Titus 2, Jesus Christ gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness, including this area of not having self-control, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. When you fail, come to God, confess your sins with a sorrowful heart, and he forgives your sins. You hear it in the words of absolution. That's when the pastor reminds you that you are a forgiven child of God. These are God's word from the Bible. In the waters and the word of baptism, the person being baptized receives forgiveness. It's a means of grace. It's a holy mystery. Forgiveness is theirs. Next week when you come forward, Holy Communion, bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ along with his word, you get forgiveness. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's a meal of remembrance to be sure, but it's more than that. It's a conveyor belt. It's a pipeline giving you God's grace and his forgiveness when you fail. All you bring to Holy Communion next week is your sin. We bring nothing else and it's taken from you. And the full benefit that Christ earned for you on the cross is given to you in that holy meal. Well, we're at the end of our time right now. So a couple of next steps. These are at the bottom of your worship outline. Maybe think about these things. Pray about these things this week. Now, using God's word, it's important. Base this on God's word. But set up standards for your life that you will abide by. Uh, Write out an outline of who you want to be as a person. I want to do these things. I don't want to do those things. Base it on God's word and what he tells us is good for us and the things that we ought not to be doing and start working toward this idea of self-control. Number two, remember that this is a temporary struggle and be encouraged that relief is on the way. Thank God. And number three, when you fail, come to God in confession and he will forgive you of your sins. Let's pray. Father, in this area of self-control, I bet there's a lot of us who feel sad. We try to do the things we shouldn't, but we do. We try not to do the things that we shouldn't. We, we do them. We, we want to do the things that we should and we don't. Your servant, the Apostle Paul, knew about the struggle. He writes about them in Romans 7. Right now, as a congregation of struggling believers, we cry out with the word help. Would you help me? Would you help us in this area of self-control? Let your Holy Spirit guide us and empower us and strengthen us and encourage us that we might know the forgiveness of Christ for all of our failings, yet live in the power of self-control that comes from your spirit. We're grateful, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And together we all say, amen.